you know, we are, I, I like to think that as, a, as black conservatives, you know, we're neither in the black corner or the white corner. You know, we are literally, we live at the fork in the road on every discussion. We've experienced both sides of the argument and it's, it, I love it. I think it's great. You know, it causes you to see life through the prism of human nature and not through the prism of color. By living at this fork in the road, it causes us to have to think things out on a much deeper level. And, um, and, and I like it. I love it. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I talk to one woman who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And over the next week, we'll continue with our mini season on the Georgia runoffs, focusing on the two Senate races that have Americans waiting on the edge of their seats. All eyes seem to be on my home state of Georgia that just went blue for President-elect Joe Biden. And in our last episode, we got the inside scoop from a longtime Democrat, Nan Orak, who has been serving in the state legislature. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Janelle King. It may be the, the major moment in my entire existence as of right now is to continue to try to push politics in the direction of the people and away from these dictatorship mentalities. Janelle is a Republican policy consultant and is currently advising incumbent Republican Kelly Loeffler, who is running against Reverend Raphael Warnock. As a seventh generation Georgian, I feel strongly about local politics, but I also feel strongly about having candid conversations across the aisle. So Janelle and I started this conversation agreeing that we can disagree. And I think Janelle was okay with that. I enjoy having conversations with people who I don't always see eye to eye. Like we may have disagreements. I prefer those conversations so much more than I do the ones where we're all saying the same thing. <laughs> In addition to being a policy consultant for Senator Kelly Loeffler, Janelle appears regularly on TV to discuss politics and runs a construction business with her husband. You're an entrepreneur. You're the former deputy state director of the Georgia Republican Party. You're co-founder of Speak Georgia. And I know you from your bipartisan weekly TV show. You're a panelist on mm -hmm. Atlanta, Fox 5, The Georgia Gang. And I am from Atlanta, Georgia, mostly Sandy Springs, Georgia. That's the suburbs. Um, and I was born in New Haven, Connecticut. And we moved to North Carolina when I was younger. And then from North Carolina, I moved to Georgia. So I claim Georgia. I've been here now for over 10 years. So, um, and this is, Georgia has definitely raised me. So um, I definitely claim Georgia. And um, what I do right now, I am a media personality and I do political commentating. A large part of who I am is built in all of the mistakes that I made. You know, you had said something to the effect of, you know, you feel like you are a culmination of your mistakes and your learnings. Yeah. Can you can you walk me through a formative experience you had when you were young that you feel was like an aha moment for you? 
Yeah. So um, what a lot of people don't know is that I was raised in a Hebrew household. As Hebrew Israelites, you know, we were taught that we are the direct descendants of the people, the Israelites in the Bible. Um, So, you know, you have the Jewish community and then you have the Hebrew community. So I I like to say Hebrews are simply black Jews. (laughs) Um, It's much deeper for us, but for the sake of explaining it. Um, So we kept the holy days. We didn't, I didn't, you know, we didn't keep any of like Christmas or Easter, any of that stuff, only the holy days. Um, we didn't even have Hanukkah. So, oh wow, <laughs> because it That's wasn't intense. technically a holy day, <laughs> right? So, we it's were not, really I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so, I'm yeah. half, I like to say I'm half Jewish, half Southern. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so you get it, you get it completely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, Hanukkah's def- and our family was like, okay, you get one night of Hanukkah, like, don't right. hit yourself. Right. So I think, you know, this is something that's really small, but I I, I hated it when I was a child, but Mm. now I understand the beauty of it, where Mm -hmm. we didn't celebrate Christmas. And as a child, that felt really lonely. But Mm -hmm. as I got older, it kind of prepared me to be the oddball out. And it made me comfortable, <laughs> right? Like, so I was extremely you got your, like, comfortable. like, Malcolm Gladwell training hours. Right. Like, 10,000 hours by the time you graduate <laughs> high school. Exactly. Exactly. And we didn't wear pants. So I was, like, the girl in the skirt who never wore pants, who didn't, you know, celebrate any of the holidays. And um, it was just, like, training and being your own person, and, mm-hmm. um, and being values-based, I think. Exactly, exactly. You know, we were taught that our hope is in God and our there is something greater a part in this world that has nothing to do with politics or what we see in the natural. It kind of puts you in a position where you, you feel a boldness to uh, be who you are and, and, and not need the acceptance of a lot of people in order to do it. So that was a really formative time for me in my childhood. And I think as I became an adult, something that was really, really formative to me is that I got married twice before, Mm, but having parents who were married for now 38 years Mm -hmm. and they were the first, each other's first boyfriend and girlfriend, they never dated anyone else and they're still together. My parents are similar. (laughs) Right. So you have that as an example and it's like, so you think that- A lot of love, a lot of laughter. Exactly. That marriage is the Every fight ends in a laugh. (laughs) Right, right, right. So you see that and you just think, okay. Okay, well, that's, you know, marriage is the way. But then after my second divorce is when I started focusing on my career. And um, about eight and a half years later, I married my now husband, who is my forever husband. tough. Thank, thank you. <laughs> who is my forever husband. And um, yeah, we're great. We're doing great. <laughs> um, so you feel like, how did that, um, let me actually read this to you. Okay. So I was looking at a at an article about you and mm-hmm. it talked about kind of your political awakening. And I think you were in college. Yes. yes. And I was wondering if you can describe that experience. Yeah. So I went to a HBCU, North Carolina A&T State University, Aggie Pride. And um, I was graduating around the Obama era. So mm-hmm. during that time, you know, he ran a very, very strong grassroots game. And I remember being told that there was going to be some get out the vote activity happening on campus, but it was nonpartisan. And 
I just remember seeing all of the information that was being passed out and the information had the Obama O on it. Um, It didn't say Obama though, right? But it had the O. And so I just remember thinking, well, this is, I guess it awakened my strategic mind because I was like, this is not Mm. (laughs) nonpartisan, you know? Like we clearly know what this O is, right? But at the time, I was neither Republican or Democrat. I wasn't in politics like that. So I listened to what he represented. I could not connect with his policies. But I did vote for him in the first go-round because I felt like it was important for the Black community to have representation that did not come in the form of basketball, athletes, football, or entertainment. And I felt like if you showed a Black person in the highest office on earth, you now create a pathway in the brains of children that look like me that says no matter where you come from, you can still achieve more. And so I felt like that was way more important than where I stood politically in that moment. I didn't vote for him the second go round. I voted for Mitt Romney. And that's because I started continuing my, well, I continued my research into politics. And I just realized that I identified way more with the Republican message. And that was because I was raised on personal responsibility and self-responsibility. I'd really love for you to kind of Mm -hmm. go into that a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. It can be really easy for people to be in a liberal bubble. And as someone who's from Georgia, Mm -hmm. like when I think about conservatives, like I don't think of them as like only rural or only poor or voting in their, not in their interest. I think of Mm -hmm. them as my neighbor. I think of them as my cousin. I think of them as my uh, schoolmates and people who take care of me in the Mm -hmm. South. And I think that, um, you know, one of the big things that's hard about living in New York is sometimes people will be like, Oh, Georgia, like as if they, first of all, I'm like, Oh, so it sounds like you've never been. Um, (laughs) or when people are like Hotlanta, I'm like, so you've never been to Atlanta. Is that what you're trying to say? I know. Um, Or they're like, how do you feel about Outcast?" And I'm like, I'm definitely not responding to you asking me that. That's so funny. I can't tell you how that's like the first question people say. That's hilarious. I'd love for you to unpack um, what you mean by personal responsibility and and that being kind of a resounding motivation and how you see that differentiated between your two like political parties. Okay. So... I would start by saying that, um, for one, Outcast is a very important part of Georgia. Um, the South partic- has something per- to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let I mean, I mean, you know, but if you mention Outcast, you have to mention Goody Mob. My husband would be offended if I didn't mention Goody Mob. For me, personal responsibility is that, in my opinion, is exactly what my ancestors fought for. That is what they wanted. Above anything else, they knew. Madam C.J. Walker, and I'm just going to use people that we know for for sure that we've heard of, right? But Madam C.J. Walker is the epitome of self-responsibility. It's interesting because it seems like we only want to talk about slavery and we only want to talk about Jim Crow and, and all the negative things that happen in Black history. But and this is where my Hebrew comes in. Um, <laughs> but we we understand that there was a time prior to slavery where Black people ruled and le- led. But even if we don't want to go that far back, 
let's just start start at the Black Wall Street era. We're talking about a time where the Black community thrived in every way possible. And it wasn't because they were fans of segregation. They appreciated a simulation, but they also understood that there were cultural differences. And there's a comfortable, a comfortable space in that. But Madam C.J. Walker is the epitome of self-responsibility because she knew, along with everyone else who started companies and built Black Wall Street, that all they needed was opportunity. We didn't need you know, you to tell us we were free. We need you to let us be free. <laughs> and that's just it. And so I know for a fact that allowing, it's, it's, it's the same thing that Frederick Douglass said when he was like, you know, what do we do about the Negro? That's what he was asked. And he said, leave us alone. Leave us alone. Let us be. Give us the tools and the resources that are afforded to everyone else. And we will take that and multiply it and do what we do like everyone else. You know, we are as human as everyone else. So we have the same abilities. People think that somehow my makeup does not is not designed for me to be successful unless I have the support of someone who doesn't look like me. That is not true. That is false. And as long as you continue to perpetuate that mentality, if in younger Black children, you're going to produce a growing society of people who seem to think that at the end of the day, I'm not capable of being successful. When all that is so untrue, we are all capable. My husband's mother was 15 years old when she had him. His father wasn't around when he was a little boy. He did not grow up in wealth. He ended up doing his work in high school got good grades. He was accepted into the Air Force Academy. It wasn't because of affirmative action. <laughs> Served his country, started his construction company. And in, in seven years, he built it to a seven-figure company. He did that as a Black man in America with the same challenges that everyone else has. Every statistic, I mean, he had his son at 19 years old. Every statistic that, you know, you can check off, he could have become it. And he didn't. And it's not because there weren't challenges. It's not because there wasn't a pathway to those things. But it's because he took personal responsibility, made sure he checked every one of his decisions, and did the best he could. And he succeeded. It's a story that happens with so many other people. I'm very passionate about personal responsibility, if you can't tell. <laughs> I feel like when you speak about it, you're also not speaking about something else. To me, when I hear you speak like that, I'm like, mm -hmm. that all makes sense. Um, Black Wall Street was targeted and attacked. And I mm -hmm. think that the story of Madam C.J. Walker, they just made a Netflix series about her self-made. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. There are redlining and all kinds of things um, that make it harder. And even today, you know, education is based on property taxes and access is still really hard depending on, on where you live. And I think that that is, I think that there are a lot of things where policy hasn't permeated Mm -hmm. What I hear you describe is like a confluence between policy and like a value system and that by perpetuating that you that these things need to be separated and addressed equally, mm -hmm. but in different conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you when you mix it all together, you lose so much. And um, if and, and policy 
is a reason why I decided to become outspoken about my politics. I feel that, especially my community, we're getting beat down by policy, not because of anything else other than that. And, and the social issues are there, but you can't legislate someone's heart. So I don't care how many times we put policies in place that's supposed to stop people from being racist. If someone is racist and hateful, they're going to be racist and hateful. As far as like education, you know, I'm a strong advocate of school choice. I think that should be something that is supported on both sides of the aisle, not just by conservatives. If you want to see diversity in our school system, then let's create a, a society where school choice is celebrated and not prohibited. And for me, something that's way bigger than racism is classism. I, I know the little white kids who are, are living in way worse situations in rural Georgia than the poor black kids in metro Atlanta. When you really want to face it and really get to the nitty gritty of the issue, it's about class. So I don't care how much policy you put in place or how many elected officials you elect that look like you and I, it's not going to change the hearts of man. Only God can do that. We are not God and we can't play God. When you focus back on policy, school choice is number one. We've got to do something about that. We did a recent poll and the polls showed that African-American moms wanted school choice at a much higher rate than it can ever be imagined, but yet Black women vote Democrat at a much higher rate. I see flaws on both sides. But I will say that in this particular issue, there is a voting against your interest issue that's happening. It's actually hurting your kids. If people had the power, then these moms that all are fans of school choice can still vote Democrat if they want to, but they can at least go to their school board member who may happen to be a Democrat, which is the case in most of these cities, and tell them, I want school choice. It's okay to change policies. One of my favorite quotes of yours is, um, we have to have a backbone made of steel to be a black woman Republican. So, so true. Um, you know, we are, I, I like to think that as, a, as black conservatives, you know, we're neither in the black corner or the white corner. You know, we are literally, we live at the fork in the road on every discussion. So, you know, despite what, you know, where we have like white conservatives who immediately may say, oh, well, we already know what direction we're going to go down. And then black liberals are like, oh, we already know what direction we're going to go down. The black conservative is like, OK, I understand the plight and the issues in my culture, but I also understand it from a very much more holistic perspective because we've lived in another society as well. Mm. So you live in another society in both, as well. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've experienced both sides of the argument. And it's, it, I love it. I think it's great. You know, it causes you to see life through the prism of human nature and not through the prism of color. That, you know, by living at this fork in the road, it causes us to have to think things out on a much deeper level. And, um, and, and I like it. I love it. I, I feel like it makes you a whole person. You know, I've had some really difficult conversations with people who didn't look like me. And, some of them made me feel hurtful. Um, and it wasn't even about politics, but just in general. You know, one of the policy issues that you're really passionate about is, mm -hmm. is health care. You're a consultant for different mm -hmm. Republican candidates. Um, you're a consultant to Senator Kelly Loeffler. And, you know, 
people really value value your opinion. So I'm curious to know what are some of the things that you're sharing with them? Yeah, so healthcare is definitely something that's really important to me, mostly because I don't think the t- the subject is explained properly. Then it's just like, okay, we all want everyone to have access to good healthcare. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, because so for for one side it may mean universal healthcare. For the other side, it may mean just creating different um, policies and tweaking things where you can get your prescriptions lowered, where you can you know see the doctor for a lower cost. Um, But overall, we all have the same goal, which is to have access to adequate health care. I had a personal experience that really kind of shined the light into this subject. And uh, I went I had an opportunity to go to Israel in 2017. And while I was there, I fell on the marble because the marble was so slick. Oh, my God. (laughs) I did. In my room, my hotel room. I fell oh my God, and I. That's um, one of my worst fears. I put the like towels oh, down all over. Oh my God. I'm always like fancy the, bathroom, fancy trap. Let me tell you the way I fell, I actually fell like right. I, I caught myself and my chin like hit. It caused a deep cut. And so oh over in you know, Israel, they have universal health care. And so as I was there, I was talking to the doctors and trying to understand, you know, how this works because I, I look for opportunities to be wrong. So ultimately, um, the doctor was just explaining that it was a hundred. I think all the doctors are paid 160000 a year and that there are options to pay monthly for healthcare, and that would put you at the top of the list. He was like, most people take that option. And I thought that was interesting. The problem is that we don't get to the details. We don't get to dissect these discussions. So I want healthcare to definitely be a number one discussion. And then healthcare as it relates to women's fertility. I would like for us to talk about fertility and fertility treatments as much as we talk about abortion, if not more. Um, I believe 9 million um, women were impacted from, from infertility. And that is, that's a huge number. And I think they say like one in every five or four women. Um, I personally have been experiencing um, fertility issues and it's been a very emotional journey. It's like sometimes it's not about having the baby as much as it's about not being broken. And so that's something that I think we need to really dig deep into and see what can we do in the early years, in the formative years of women, like that 25 age range to say, hey, instead of doctors saying, okay, you know, when you get in your 30s, you're waiting too late. I've brought it up with my doctor many times. Mm -hmm. Are there things that I can do to be proactive if I know I want to be a mom? Yes. And I knew that at 18. I knew that at 21. I knew that at 25. I want to be a mom. Mm -hmm. I don't have a partner right now Mm -hmm. or I'm not ready to right now, but what are the steps that I need to take? And they were like, well, take birth control. (laughs) That's a much shorter conversation than taking 20 minutes or 30 minutes to describe to me what my actual options are, how much they are, if my healthcare covered it. The ironic thing is that probably before I was 25, I had better healthcare and it may oh, have yeah. covered some of my fertility investigation or fertility mm-hmm. options. Yeah. And they were not discussed with me even after I asked at a very fancy OBGYN clinic in Atlanta. <laughs> right. I know. I know. I um I found out that I had blocked fallopian tubes and that was something that was you know really challenging when you first hear it. 
However, I'm now learning that there are methods around it. I mean, that's why most women um, take, you know, have IVF or go the IVF route. Um, okay, I didn't know that of, actually. Yeah, because of, um, you know, they have good ovarian reserve right. with their fallopian tubes are blocked. So it just, and a good uterus. And, so it's ex- just like the exactly. highway. Exactly. The sperm and the egg can't meet. So they can't fertilize, right? right. So um, so they, the doctors are like, oh, that's fine. We see it all the time. And I'm just like, if you see this all the time, why am I just now hearing about it? So while it's not a death sentence, and there are definitely ways around it, had I known this at 25, I could have froze my eggs, you know, and just at my 25 eggs, you know, and then like everything would have been gray. I was like, oh, I know that when I'm in my 30s, I'm probably going to have to have IVF. And so you can save money for it. There's so many things that could have been done 10 years ago that, you know, was not explained to me. So I really, really am passionate about this. I think this is a topic that I'm really going to try to drive home is, you know, you have a HSG, which is where they just send um, liquid dye into your uterus. And if your tubes are open, it'll spill out the sides. I would love to see an HSG exam being done as a, a normal work up for women that are that turn 25. You know, one of the things that Republicans have been really great on mm-hmm. is clear and simple messaging. Mm-hmm. How do you tackle mm-hmm. women's health care mm-hmm. as a clear and simple message? Yeah. Um, it's so funny you say that because I felt like Republicans are the worst on messaging because <laughs> what they just I have one like... thing they say. They they're <laughs> like even what uh, what did Purdue say the other day? He's like, it doesn't even matter about the issues. Go vote. That was simple. Go vote. I, you know what? I think um, I feel like Democrats focus too much on the emotional connection to topics, and I think Republicans focus too much on the data connection to topics. And so interesting for us, it's like, come on, guys, this is logical. But I feel like on the Democrat side, it's like, come on, like, that's not like we're human, you know, and, you know, we we still have feelings. How do you have a more nuanced conversation? How do we talk about women's health care as a priority and not an afterthought? How do we talk about pro-life as a maternal health, infant health? You know, Georgia has one of the highest rates of, uh, you know, fatalities for, you know, new moms and -hmm. for new babies. That doesn't sound pro-life to me. And that's something that we can all agree on. How do you have a more complicated conversation, for example, about women's health care? Does this mean that you, Janelle, have this obligation or heavy burden to share your very personal story all the time, like on air? What (laughs) does that deeper conversation look like when it comes to changing policy? Um, I think it just looks like that to me, that deeper conversation looks like a willingness to listen. The passing of the civil rights bill happened because two parties were willing to listen. It was not the president that passed the bill. It was the House and the Senate that passed the bill where Republicans voted overwhelmingly in support of of that bill, not Democrats. So it, it, it was a discussion that took place across the board. And one thing about Dr. King is that his father was a Republican. He was an independent. And they understood the, the value that comes in having both sides of the argument being heard and finding a common ground. But when you want to retreat to your corners and not have an opportunity to create common ground, that's when you get what we have right now. Violence and extremism on any side 
It's never worked. It is never going to work. It's not going to happen. And when it comes to police brutality, you can defund, you can reduce, you can create more programs. But unless you have a meter that can read what is in the heart of a person, there's nothing you can actually do to change the fact that there are good people and there are bad people in this world. And so focusing on good versus evil should be the focal point and not on race. When you talk about the the importance is to discuss policy, I wanted to ask you two questions about this in terms of the Georgia U.S. Senate runoffs. One is, is that when I go on to David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler's websites, they don't have policy comments for different categories. But when I go on to Raphael Warnock or John Ossoff's website, they have bullets for what they want for policy when it comes to everything from climate change to healthcare to agriculture. Is there a reason that the Republican side on in Georgia is like very succinct and doesn't really elaborate on their policy on their website to their constituents? I definitely think that as Republicans, like I said, our messaging could be better. We have foundational items like the protection of your of your Second Amendment rights. So we are we're definitely focusing on foundational issues. When it comes to the Democratic side, they tend to to elaborate more on the details, so to speak, of things. But I do feel like oftentimes those details are not details that can really be accomplished. Like, for instance, there was talks of canceling student loan debt. Well, then after the election, now it's, well, we're going to reduce maybe 10,000 from everyone. And then it's, oh, well, no, we may cancel debt only for those who attended HBCUs. And so there's always this like this little bait and switch that happens when you see these like blanket statements that we all know on the Republican side just cannot happen. And so, you know, we obviously they are realizing that, too. That's why they're changing it up a little bit. But either way, I would love to see both parties go back to having concrete platforms that are not only connected to where our parties stand, but it's connected to the people in the community. I would love that. I wanted to get your opinion on whether you thought it was a smart move for David Perdue to not show up to the second debate with John Ossoff. I know you think with strategy, but I guess I'm asking mm-hmm. you more as a Georgia citizen. Um, I, see, I see positives and negatives on both sides. See, here's the thing. So Senator Perdue has been running against John Ossoff for this entire time. You know, Senator Leffler had 21 other candidates and it was almost like she ran like a sort of a primary going up, leading up to November because of Doug Collins. But that wasn't the case with Senator Doug Perdue. Doug Collins is the other conservative who was favored by Trump. However, yes. in the Georgia race, their primary, you can have as many mm-hmm. people as you want in the ballot. So Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock were the top two. Doug Collins was the third. Mm-hmm. Therefore, in this election, it went to a runoff between Kelly Leffler and Raphael Warnock. Doug Collins was pushed out. Correct. Correct. Um, so Senator Perdue saw this as an opportunity to do more grassroots work instead of sitting in a studio and talking about the same issues and answering the same questions for the fourth time. I, I understand that completely. 
I think the only reason why I see it as slightly maybe a missed opportunity was because it was broadcast nationally, right? And the other debates were more local debates. I don't think we would have heard anything different from Senator Perdue than what we've right. been hearing. And we didn't hear anything different from Ossoff either. So even when he was there by himself, he said the same things that he said in other debates. So I just think I, I get debated out, to be honest. <laughs> If we move into a place where not only we're in our own bubbles, but like the debate is optional, I just wonder like where mm-hmm. we're headed. I guess it's more of a decorum thing, which I feel like as a Southerner, mm-hmm. decorum is really important. It is. It is. And um, I think that, like I said, if it was the first debate, I may feel differently. In Senator Leffler's position, being that she's new, she's a new senator, it's super important for her to uh, display who she is and, and where she stands every chance she gets. For Senator David Perdue, he has um, a record that you can go search. I most certainly understood um, his take on, you know, just not repeating the same talking points over and over again. I often see you um, as the only rational and grounded person in a room with like really heated people. And this is like <laughs> really on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I wonder, especially when you're around your own party and things get heated and um, conversation can get out of hand, what do you do to like channel your composure versus kind of like feeding into like alternative media sources or other mm-hmm. things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, f- I realized very early on that when I get emotional about something, it's deeply connected to fear. There are a lot of people who are afraid to stand up and speak on what they believe is right because they know it may not be the popular discussion, no matter what side you're on. You know, I am quick to criticize on my side. And so I look forward to opportunities to criticize my side because I know that as being the younger generation, the up and coming generation, Things are not going to look the same. And I um, I have meetings with young people, especially in the state of Georgia, that's going to be running for these seats um, that are conservative. And I'm excited to, to share with the world where we all stand, because there are times where we just, you know, don't necessarily agree 100% with some of the direction that our party has gone in. And it's okay to disagree, to come up with new ideas that doesn't move you away from your foundational principles, but it also acknowledges that the world has changed. What are the top three issues uh, that appeal to young conservatives? Um, I don't know if I can think of top three, but I will say that um, one of the number one issues that I've heard a lot that's coming up now is the conversation around marijuana. For medical marijuana, it's mostly health. And and I think we, we also have grown into the, the natural, more healthy society. And so being able to be more dependent on natural medical alternatives outside of prescriptions and pharmaceuticals is something that is really major for young conservatives. School choice is a big issue for young conservatives because we are wanting to live closer to our families and stuff like that. But if the schools are not good, then we want to have the option of sending our kids somewhere else and not be forced into private schools or charter schools if we have to um, in order to do that. So there are there are things that are um, just new. And so it kind of forces the younger generation to have to ask ourselves, where do we stand on these things? And I think that's the big topic is that many of us are 
in support of the legalization of marijuana. I was excited to see uh, Representative Matt Gates fight for that because I do think that it is an issue that is being totally misunderstood. Especially now, I mean, everyone's in quarantine. I think people need a relief. <laughs> <laughs> this show is brought I mean, to you by Edibles. <laughs> right. <laughs> And it would be really amazing if we could make a list of everything that we agree on and just use that as our starting list. Mm-hmm. Like when you think about, like think about a relationship with your husband or your mm-hmm. parent, you don't, every time you talk to them, start with everything yeah. you disagree. Yeah. I mean, you can, yeah. maybe a shitty relationship, right. but you start with like, oh my God, we both love Sabrina, the old mm-hmm. version. Oh my God, <laughs> the new version is so bad. Like right. you start there. The conversation I had with Cinder Leffler when I first talked to her is what drew me to support her. Because when we talked, she genuinely was just all about the American dream. I think that that is a nonpartisan issue. Um, and as it relates to what are some of these red tapes and roadblocks that are in place that has caused um, so many to not be able to benefit from the opportunities that are here. You know, she was like, I just believe that everyone can experience the American dream. But most importantly, she's like, I feel as elected officials, our goal is to make sure it's not difficult to obtain it. We got to put policies in place and break away from some of this red tape and bureaucracy that has caused us to make it difficult for our small business owners, our startup companies. You know, it's almost like they're hidden sometimes. And, um, and And as much as, you know, people may hate President Trump's personality, I personally don't really care about people's personalities. I feel like when you're in leadership, I care about what you're what you're putting out again as it relates to policy. I personally know of people who benefited from policies that came out of the administration and benefited in a way that I know will create generational return. And so it is important that we demand of elected officials on both parties that we demand to focus on the concerns of the people, not the personal concerns of you. But what are the concerns of the people? I get tired of polling whether or not we are going to support a particular candidate. If we polled based on issues, I really think we'll see things a lot differently. I think that's really important. And I think if we polled based on issues, then maybe our elected officials could feel liberated to not dehumanize the other side. For It's so interesting that emotions and like stirring up the emotional base is being talked about on the Republican side, because for so long, I think that what what President Trump did was he pulled people who seemed to have been the forgotten out of the shadows. And I say the forgotten from both parties, Republicans and Democrats. Um, they are the poor white community that is does not fit in any category. And I feel like I kind of identify with the feelings of the poor white community because it's like if Mm. you are poor and you're white it's the assumption that you shouldn't be because you have white privilege and then if you are you know not in support of the social issues on the democratic side then you must be racist and that is so that's a group of people who have been pushed all the way to the side and have no had no place to really fit in well president trump said nope i hear you and I'm going to pull you out of the shadows. And I feel as though, 
I'm okay with that because for years I've dealt with 96% of the black vote going to the Democratic side for the same reason. And so it's it's been a part of the fabric of our of politics is being able to connect with different voting blocks. And then, you know, and then even when it comes to the corporations as a business owner, even right now, there are families that are connected to the revenue that we produce at our company. So it's a it there is a trickle down effect that takes place that is really right. beneficial. I mean, and if we remove that, this is really hard for me to get on board with because you know driving through rural Georgia as I did the other day, I see all these counties mm-hmm. where hospitals have closed, where schools aren't going, where it's hard to get broadband, and you mm-hmm. know. I'm thinking about how Netflix didn't pay taxes last year or how Amazon isn't paying taxes either. And we're talking Mm -hmm. about money on such a scale that it wouldn't impact their personal lives. Jeff Bezos is still going to have a helicopter, whether Amazon pays taxes or not. I feel like our, our belief in this like billionaire company philosophy is really hurting business owners who are 98% of, you know, the American population. Mm -hmm. That's where we definitely see so this is a good conversation because I could see a balance in this. Like this is where. So I agree with you that we need to make sure. But I'm a small business owner and I don't want to be taxed twice either. You know what I, I mean? I was getting ready to say you know? I was so just getting ready to like, say that. Like, um, you know, it's it it's it doesn't make any exactly. sense that I feel this fulcrum when Amazon, Netflix, mm-hmm. and all these people who are making money off of me and not even my subscription, they're paying off, they're making money off my user data. And, you know, and right. I just don't understand. Right. I feel like the Republican legislature and the Republican um, judicial appointees and the Democratic officials mm-hmm. who are in the pockets of big big tech, big pharma, are not using mm-hmm. the people's interest the Instagram, the WhatsApps, the mm-hmm. the Amazons and the Netflixes. Like yeah. if we just tax them mm-hmm. fairly, yeah. then all Americans mm-hmm. could have a fair tax. I think I think that there is room for um, us to definitely adjust when it comes to the tax rate. I think that w- what I've learned is that we have to factor in risk too, you know? So in a lot of cases, you know, my, like our employees will come and they go to work, they do their job, they get a check, but that's because we're taking the brunt of all the risk. Being a job creator, it starts off with a lot Mm. of your own money being put up before you make any money. Right. So there does need to be a tax law in place that is fair and that adequately looks at every angle and not just from like one perspective. Okay, so it does sound like we're making our party official, <laughs> our joint <I> party. <laughs> we already have like a full platform. <laughs> I know. Um, we have all the bullets for our policies that are actually attainable. Right. <laughs> I know. It's really cool. Like, I mean, when it's happening because of discussion through two different thought processes. What do these Georgia runoffs mean to you and um, how do they affect your work? Who wins? Wow. So for me, you know, the Georgia runoff represents balance. I think it is beneficial to both people, both sides of the bar of the aisle to have some diversity somewhere. So for me, it just it represents balance. It represents, you know, having to force our elected officials to come back to the people because, you know, like if everything is in one direction, whether it's Republican or Democrat, you know, I just don't think any party should have 100 percent control. 
can you speak to uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler and Senator David Perdue, who are both running as the incumbents? I think what they both represent and what they offer us is um, a break from politicians. Both of them come from a business background. And we all know that the reason why America is so great is because of our free market system. I know there are people who disagree with it and want to do away with capitalism, but capitalism is the it's a, a direct path to generational wealth. So I, I love the idea that we will have two people in office at the same time who understand business. Cinder Leffler contributed a lot towards building out the um, stimulus package that went towards helping a lot of small businesses because she helped take a few small businesses from startup to public, you know? So um, I think what we have is in them too is the ability to have discussions around kitchen table topics rather than just kind of creating career politicians. I mean, neither one of them want to be in office forever and ever and ever. So um, so I know their goal is to get in office, do what's necessary, leave, leave it better than where it was before. And um, I think that's a great benefit that we have, especially in the state of Georgia. And can you speak to what you see um, as John Ossoff, who's running against David Perdue, and uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's running against Kelly Loeffler? What do they mean to you, these two Democratic nominees? Mm -hmm. So I really don't want to sound negative, but I do feel like they both represent establishment politics to me. Um, I don't hear... Even though neither of them have been in office? Yes, because I, I listened to some of John Ossoff's speeches when he's in a private crowd full of Democrats, and he sounds like a totally different person than when he's on his commercials and talking to us, the, the general public. I would rather just know who you really are. Like, where do you really stand? If you are more of a progressive that does support all of the things that I may not support, at least I know who that is. When I look at the commercials and I feel like every commercial that targets black, the black community, it's like sad music and somebody's like struggling. And that's not the case. We're in Atlanta. Like, there's the most thriving, business-oriented, successful Black people here, you know? So I can't even relate to those commercials. But when it sounds like you're simply repeating Pelosi or AOC or Chuck Schumer it's, or Stacey Abrams, it's just like, well, who am I running against? You or all of them? Um, how do you see the Republican uh, Senate leadership how do you see that evolving? Because what we've really seen is an obstructionist government, which I don't think really reflects the American point of view and really doesn't work for the people, especially as we're paying these senators mm -hmm. to do a job. And that job is is not just to like stand up and look for loopholes to, and I'm speaking to Mitch McConnell specifically mm -hmm. and Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't want to see a Democratic legislature just be an obstructionist to a Republican president. And mm -hmm. I think that that swing that we've been seeing in the last eight years from Obama with Mitch McConnell and um, Nancy Pelosi and Trump is, is not a great precedent. 
Um, how do you see the how do you see the Republican Party moving past obstructionist governing? I don't see it as obstructionist governing because I, I, I think it's OK for both parties to support policies and support things that are directly in alignment with their foundational principles. On both sides, there has been a lot of of, of pretty much just defending their side. I, I think having new or, or younger people come into the conservative yes. discussion yeah. is key because we're coming with a new mindset of like, we know the world that we were raised in and that's not the same world from people who've been in office for 40 and 50 years. So no. if you think about it, you know, that's kind of a problem. If you haven't held a corporate job in 50 years, we're, we're coming from a world where we've experienced everything. Most of us are small business owners and we're closely connected to the heart of the community as well as we understand government. That's a great thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited that I think that the future of the legislators, even especially on the conservative side, is going to be in great hands because, you know, not to toot my own horn, but <laughs> but I'm definitely helping um, a lot of younger people coming from a, a area of grassroots. I don't even, I don't work with anybody um, new who hasn't knocked on a few doors. Um, we're moving into our lightning round. Okay. I do a little drum roll. It's called <laughs> Truth or Truth. We go light after we go deep. It's a lightning round on the women. Okay. <laughs> so you, um, this is your third marriage and mm -hmm. you work with your husband on a lot of things. Yes. What is your relationship advice to someone who runs a company with their spouse? Seeking to be understood, not to be right. Because sometimes what, what I think is right may not be how other people understand it. You know, it may not be what their perspective is. And so it is important to me to know what your perspective is of what I'm saying. I don't necessarily have to live by everyone's perspective, but I do want to know how am I being perceived because that's ultimately what matters. So um, it's more important that the other person understands where you're coming from. And a lot of times that happens when you are able to kind of put yourself in their shoes. But he was previously married before too, um, one time before. And so I think us both having experienced the bad side of things cause us to greatly appreciate the good side. And we just want to live in what we call is we have to stay in residence. So, you know, stay in that flow. So we just do whatever's necessary to keep the residence and the flow going in our marriage. And uh, you're a big Braves fan. Yes, I am. <laughs> so I grew up yes. like a couple mm -hmm. miles away from the Fulton, Fulton County Stadium. Mm -hmm. So the whole lineup of Javi Lopez, Galarraga, <laughs> both and both Jones, Andrew mm -hmm. Jones, Chipper Jones, mm -hmm. like and the names Maddox and like <laughs> Glavin. <laughs> Yes. Like these are these are names that like occupy my 90s dreams. Okay. <laughs> and I was wondering if you had one player that you love. Ooh. Um that's interesting because my connection to the Braves is not because of the players. So that was our first date and uh we didn't know really? we were, Yeah, we didn't even know that we were really dating. We were just like we were friends and he was just he had season tickets and so he's like well let's just come to a game so finally invited me to the game 
And um, and it turned into a date because we had such a great experience. And, um, oh, and then we went fun. to another game and then it just turned out to be a decompressed moment. Were you ever on the kiss cam? We were not, but we did have our first oh. kiss there. And um, yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. I think the Braves, they won. Um, and then so my husband, he was cheering and he turned around and he just kissed me. And in my mind, I was like, oh, that was like our first kiss. He didn't even realize that he kissed me. So... You know, so it wasn't <laughs> it was his such first a kiss. moment of passion. <laughs> I know. It the was fireworks are going off. We connect over winning. <laughs> <laughs> we knew then we were totally oh. in it for for the long run. And afterwards, we went to dinner and we just talked about what we saw in the future. And then after that moment, we we're inseparable. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. You're so welcome. Thank you for doing this. This was so wonderful. I feel the same way. And um, I just feel like there's so many more conversations in our future. Absolutely. I feel the same way. I see a friendship budding. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also kind of serious about our new party. <laughs> <laughs> it may be a beautiful thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I think we should definitely start with a list of everything we agree on. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. That's what you should say. I think most people should do that. What if we had, during these quarantine times, imagine if you connected with your neighbors and you just listed off all the things you agreed on. Imagine what type of discussions would come out of that. <laughs> right. Right. We all like sunsets. The, exactly. <laughs> hey, let's start there. You know, <laughs> we'll work our way to the See, difficult This things. is the Georgia way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Always can bond over sweet tea. <laughs> I want to give a big thanks to Janelle for joining the show and to Lori Geary, who introduced us. Definitely check out the Georgia Gang on YouTube. And on our next episode in the Splits mini season, I sit down with the woman behind one of the largest and longest running grassroots efforts in Georgia to get out the vote, Helen Butler. Tune into the women in a few days, and reading today's credits is our very own Nora Kipnis. Hi, I'm Nora Kipnis calling from South Salem, New York. The Women is a production of the host Rose Reed. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Thanks to our team, Gail Reed and Nora Kipnis. That's me. Special thanks to Jen Shippen, Harley Bosco, and Clara Green. And a very special thanks to Ashley Fielding and Wendy Zuckerman. You can find the show on Instagram at The Women Pod. And if you have questions about voting in Georgia, visit georgia.gov. If you enjoyed this episode, you should talk about it. Tell a friend. There will be more episodes leading up to the January 5th elections about the key women on the ground. So check back in in a couple of days. Okay, I think that's it. Bye.